0: everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's e Mental Health in Practice Podcast for Healthcare Practitioners, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant e mental health tools and programs that can assist healthcare workers in providing care. I'm Phoebe Holden Sakimira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, their elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 58 on the topic of mental health of young people impacted by cancer. We had two fantastic panelists. Dr. Esther Davis is a clinical psychologist and the research manager for Canteen Australia, who has extensive research experience in psycho-oncology and end of life. Kelly Blackman is a social worker and clinical team leader for Canteen Australia, and currently works clinically with young people and parents impacted by cancer. In this podcast, we discuss the mental health impacts for young people impacted by cancer in their family, explored a case scenario of a young person who has a parent with cancer, and touched on the role of online resources in providing information and connecting young people and families. When I think of Canteen, I remember selling bandanas at high school. Canteen is a national organisation dedicated to providing free and tailored support to young people impacted by cancer. This includes counselling, books and resources, recreational activities, and peer support. More recently, Canteen has also been expanding their services to offer support to parents. Would you believe that there are 23,000 young people in Australia impacted by cancer every year? This is people from 12 to 25, who have either had cancer themselves or who have a parent or sibling with cancer. And Canteen offers support to all these young people. Yeah, 23,000 is a big
1: number, hey? It is a big number. And um, when, when we break that down, it is... Uh, around a thousand young people who will receive their own diagnosis of cancer. Around a thousand who will have a sibling diagnosed with cancer, and then the the largest cohort is that twenty one thousand of young people who will have a parent with cancer. And as you said, um, it is the the parents and the siblings are often are the ones that um, are missed when we think about young people impacted by cancer. The reason why Canteen focuses and thinks this age group is so important is that we know adolescence and young adulthood are critical developmental periods um, that, that both neurologically and socially, the experiences young people base shape who they are and resonate well and strongly into adult life and it's, it's things like um, they're exploring their identity so their possible life directions in love and work and their worldviews, and it's also when they're becoming increasingly independent so they're they're making decisions for themselves they're taking responsibility for themselves and others so the added burden of their own or familial cancer can really challenge young people's developing coping skills and that emerging sense of identity and independence. And what I certainly noticed with my clients is that very often their mental health challenges were set up long before the cancer diagnosis came along Mm. and what that diagnosis does then is effectively set up a bomb on right. those already mm-hmm. vulnerable ways of coping and relating um and thereby leading to yeah high levels of distress
0: so just really exacerbating pre-existing vulnerabilities yeah 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 um, so you mentioned the high levels of distress hmm. what does the research tell us about levels of distress in people impact young people impacted by cancer
1: Yep, so what we see is that whether young people are dealing with their own or uh, diagnosis or that of a family member, uh, young people are up to six times more likely to experience high or very high levels of distress compared to peers their own age. And that's uh, when we're comparing across K10. I think it's important to note that We're looking across the board at a really, again, that critical period. So we know for research amongst the general youth population that uh, up to three quarters of mental health diagnoses occur before the age of 25. And when we're looking at specific disorders amongst young cancer survivors or those um, who have a sibling or a parent with cancer, that you such young people can be at high risk of anxiety, uh, depressive and trauma related disorders, substance misuse, self- harm, suicidal ideation, and even suicide.
0: Um, what really strikes me in these statistics is that we see that you know the levels of high or very high levels of distress um, in in a young person with cancer is fifty nine percent. in somebody whose sibling has cancer is fifty seven percent and who somebody Whose parent has cancer, it's actually even higher at 60%. Mm. But essentially that's all the same, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I guess it, it shouldn't surprise me, but somehow it does. Yeah. <laughs> that, no. Because I, I just would have expected, I guess, that it would be the person who the the people who are dealing with their own cancer mm-hmm. uh, who'd have the highest levels mm-hmm. of distress.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I I thought the same until this research came out and you can appreciate uh, if it's your own diagnosis, just how profound mm-hmm. that would be. Um, and then equally, if it's yeah, a sibling um, or your parent in particular, and you get these complete role reversals within the family, and that's the same as well if you uh, it's a young person who has cancer themselves as. You're just having that increasing independence and then you end up needing to be cared for again. So no matter whether it's your own cancer or that of the family members, there's such profound changes within the family and for their lives going forward that, yeah, you can uh, appreciate that regardless. Um, There's a lot of distress there.
0: So let's talk then about... When when your patient is is the young person who's actually the one with the cancer. So that's the much smaller group um, that were, um, within the Australian population. Um, what does the research tell us about what young people want and need uh, from health, healthcare providers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess it's important to acknowledge that what young people might want is is highly individual, which really speaks to the importance of having these open um, conversations and being led by the young person. Um, but in terms of the research, we know that having a cancer diagnosis can be in- incredibly isolating at any age, but particularly in the, um, for the life of a young person. So, connecting with peers is an incredibly high need that young people have and young people are looking to connect with others in similar experiences um, to reduce those sense of isolation and loneliness and to increase their support network. A very consistent unmet need um, that we see through the research and that I've seen in my practice is around informational needs. So, this might mean information around their diagnosis, um, treatment options, what to expect from treatment. So, that might look like, you know, what will change their lifestyle and their relationships, uh, their ability to work and to study. Um, and also looking at informational needs around the long-term impacts on their overall health um, and on their fertility as well. And so what we see is that when young people do have these unmet need around information, it can really lead to exacerbated levels of anxiety and worry um, and A lot of difficulty in processing their own experience, whereas when young people do have access to this information, Mm -hmm. we see that there is a a higher sense of autonomy and self-agency even in their care as well. Um, and I know that uh, my young people that I work with often really value when they can, you know, jot down questions and um, work through some of those questions with their with their practitioner, and and have some of those responses in writing, so they can really digest that information well after the appointment. Um, they're often seeking for this information in a really age appropriate way or a way that's easy to interpret. And from the research as well, what we know is that that unmet pattern of needs does change depending on the stage of treatment um, and well into survivorship. So, what we know from research is that within one year of um, treatment, the, the pattern of unmet needs are generally around um, wanting more control of, in their care, seeking places of respite and timeout, um, and seeking age-appropriate care. Whereas when we go into that pattern of unmet needs into survivorship, we see a bit more of a focus on the psychological needs. So that might look like, you know, anxiety, flashbacks, um, and overall, this sense of, you know, identity. So I hear very commonly from my young people around feeling this immense pressure now to live this meaningful life now that, you know, life is normal, um, but life Yeah, but life is not normal at all. You know, their values may have changed, their social um, networks may have changed. So there is a lot of questions Hmm. and search into identity and values into the survivorship
0: space. Right. Yeah, I definitely know that as a GP, I always encourage people to make a big list um, before they go and see the oncologist and those sorts of things, um, because they're very stressful interactions, even if the healthcare practitioners are awesome. Yeah, um, for know, sure. It's, it's just it's just a stressful experience in general, and so the more prepared you are, um, yeah,
2: and even bringing in a support person, whether yeah. that's you know a parent or a friend, just to digest some of that information as well, mm. can be really helpful.
0: Yeah. All right. So you talked broadly about what young people need, um, mm. uh, but I'm also interested to hear from you um, what what we can do to help people um young people whose educational employment has been impacted by cancer treatment because it can be it's usually pretty full on isn't it
2: Absolutely. It causes a really significant disruption to education and employment. So young people um, that might be in the the schooling bracket uh, will feel difficulties maintaining grades, uh, maintaining friendships, and also often experience anxiety in the return to school from um, from treatment. So we know from research as well that young people in the survivorship um, period are more likely to be unemployed or underemployed than peers of their own age, which is a really really significant impact when we know that education and employment are social determinants of health. Um, so Canteen offers a education and career support program, which looks like individual school support, careers counselling um, and job searching as well. And I think it's really important to highlight that disruption to um, a young person's education isn't just around their vocational goals, but also impacts their social um, connection. So, Uh disruption from their connection from peers. um, And this really does work to exacerbate those feelings of isolation and loneliness that we explored earlier. And so, Canteen has a national robots program where the young person that might be in treatment is able to have a telepresence Um, via a robot in the school setting that's able to maintain some of those vocational goals and connect with their peers. The research that we've done around this program as well is that it's really worked to reduce those sense of uh, isolation and loneliness but help them as well maintain their vocational goals and be future-focused on life outside their diagnosis, which is so important.
0: All right. So in those conversations that we have with parents who have cancer themselves, what what are some suggestions for how to have that conversation and what's what what's helpful to actually cover off with them Kelly? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think a great starting point is simply just asking the parent if they've had that conversation with their young person yet and just checking in where the family's at. What we know from our research is that the wellbeing outcomes for young people are far better when there is transparency around diagnosis and prognosis. And having these open and honest conversations really gives young people the ability to be accurately informed about their family circumstance and work to reduce those feelings of isolation and loneliness and and worry um, and gives young people the capacity to respond. Um, So for parents planning to have this conversation, I mean, we just acknowledge the time poor um, aspect, but you know you can always practice um, and kind of role play in the consultation room. What we often can um, encourage parents is to draw on their previous experiences as a family. So, in reality, they've likely had a tough conversation as a family. So, really pulling that apart to to plan for this conversation. Mm-hmm. So, thinking about you know what time of day is best. Um, where does the family normally have those tough conversations? Is it around the dinner table? or is it, you know, in the car on the way to gymnastics, thinking about, you know, who's best to be there and really reminding the parent that they are actually the expert here um, in the life of their own family. So, drawing on what's worked before um, and really keeping it to the routines and the needs of the family. Mm -hmm. For this conversation, you know, it can be really helpful just to start with questions with young people. So, just asking simple questions like, Have you heard of cancer before? Or, you know, what do you know of chemotherapy? And continuing to check in with the young person's understanding of the language that's being used and using lots of spaces for questions. I think that's a really important um, aspect of the conversation, but it's incredibly important to keep that conversation going as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to continue to check in with young people around questions or concerns that they might have. I know some families that I've worked with have adopted a communication contract system in the house. So they might have, you know, a designated day once a week or month where um, they'll sit down and they'll they'll talk about the big tough stuff. And that does really help young people to feel assured that they know they're going to get that information. Um, And they can also plan and prep for some things that they might want to ask their parents. What can also be helpful that some families I've worked with have used is a question box strategy. So, that might be, you know, an old jar, um, a shoebox in the house. And what that can do is that young people can write down their questions or their concerns and pop them anonymously in the box, even though the parent Probably knows their handwriting, but mm. pop them in the, in the box, and the family will sit down together and pull those questions out and and talk to what's um, what's in there as well. And this is actually a great way for young people to access information in a less confronting way. Mm. But it's also really helpful for the parent because they've got a little bit of space to to look at some of those questions and to check in with Have their parent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, So, it's a really, really, I guess, a safe and less confronting way to to tackle some of those really big conversations. Um, It's also really important for parents to have a think about, you know, who else could be communicating with the family. Um, There might be a neighbour or an aunt and just making sure that everybody is on the same page with the information to reduce, you know, misinformation and to, to build that family's network up. And, I think it's something I always, you know, reassure parents is that it's also really important as well for parents to be role modeling that vulnerability and that they're not scared of these big, tough conversations um, to give young people, I guess, that space to learn vulnerability and honesty um, and, you know, allow them to have an opportunity to validate and and share how hard it might be um, and also learn those kind of coping skills to process what's going on in the family.
0: Um, what are the risks of, you know, keeping children in the dark about what's happening?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question and I think um, there's been a great comment in there as well mm. about how young people see and realise yeah. um, what's going on and young people are sponges. Often they will have this sense that things, something's going on um, and what can happen is the young people are going to go searching for answers. You know, I've had clients of mine that will kind of look through documentation in the house trying to find out what's going on oh, and that that leads to a really high level of anxiety worry um and difficulty processing and so having that conversation is really, really important. What we also know is that we're all humans and parents are wired to protect young people like their children. So, um, it makes sense that um, the idea of having this conversation is really tough. Um, But in the long term, it will allow young people to process and cope and feel included in the family unit. That's also really important at a time where there might be crisis in the family.
0: What are the actual key pieces of information that we know young people need to know?
2: Yeah, so simply, you know, what type of cancer is it? Is is an important one. Um, Young people are looking for information around treatment. So what are the treatment options? How long will it go for? And even it's important to break that down a bit. You know, that might look like saying things like, you know, treatment happens every Tuesday for eight hours, I go to this place and, you know, this is what I do. So, helping young people feel kind of included and, and, and understanding. It's really, really important to talk about the potential side effects of treatment. For instance, you know, hair loss, weight changes, fatigue. Um, this is really important because when young people um, don't know this information, often they can mistake a normal side effect of treatment as a sign that the cancer is getting worse. So, for instance, if you know there is hair loss due to chemotherapy and young people aren't anticipating this, they might start worrying that things are getting worse really quickly. So, it's really important to talk about this. It's also really important um, to acknowledge that life is going to change in the family unit and to help young people to feel prepared. So talking about what might change at home, that might mean young people step up to some different roles around the house. That might mean that, um, you know, the family aren't able to do Sunday night dinners or mum's not able to work. So really preparing young people of the, the the changes that they might see in the family and
0: in their lifestyle as well. So really just giving quite a lot of detail, probably Mm -hmm. more than I would have anticipated. Um, But, yeah, again, just not allowing um, there to be any ambiguity there because, as you said, people, young people will just fill in the gaps and some of that might involve quite a lot of catastrophic thinking. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about, you know, the conversations and what they involve. Beyond those conversations, Mm -hmm. what, what sort of supports do young people need Uh, when they have a family member living with cancer.
2: Yeah, often a lot of the young people that I see um, come to counselling wanting support with new and difficulty and confusing feelings that they're experiencing. So we all know that we process things in very different ways. And for some young people, this might be really sudden onset of different emotions. So that might look like anger. It might look like a sense of hopelessness. It might look like withdrawing, anxiety, low mood. Um, We often see as well, you know, even thoughts around suicide ideation, having thoughts such as, you know, if mum's not here any longer, I don't I don't want to be here either. And that can be really confronting for young people. And young people are wanting a space to share and those experiences, but also learn ways to cope and to self-soothe and to regulate through those emotions. What I often hear from my young people as well is um, wanting more support from their peers. So, what we often see is that sometimes that their school friends or their peer group just don't, understand because they don't have that experience in their life. Mm -hmm. So, young people are wanting really tangible skills in how to have that conversation with their friends and how to ask Mm -hmm. for support, um, whether that be, you know, a friend that can just distract them or, you know, to ask, um, you know, how things are going. So, wanting to be equipped with those interpersonal skills. And I guess, in terms of peer support, like we mentioned earlier, young people are really wanting to connect with others that have similar experiences so they can feel validated and seen in their experience, but also learn from others. Yes. And- Overall, I think a really important need, which is you know consistent for every human being, but timeout and rec is really important. Young people are often um, you know seeking this space where they just feel like a normal sixteen-year-old outside the the stress that that cancer brings. Um, that might mean play or exercise or just self-care. But young people are wanting this sense of normality and um, respite as well.
0: Now, I guess you know we've made huge. Ground um in in survivorship rates, and mm. I saw some research this week about young people living with cancer, just how much ground we've made in the last few decades, which is mm-hmm. just phenomenal. Um, but I guess what's important to recognise is that um the sad fact is that people in Australia still die from cancer. Mm. Um, I mean, how do we approach that? How do we approach supporting? Um, a young person um, who's bereaved by cancer.
1: Yeah, so I think the the first thing to acknowledge, and I think that everyone attending here acknowledges, is that grief is a normal response to loss, and the loss we're talking about here specifically is um, losing a family member. Uh, and that every person will grieve in their own way. And going back to what we were saying earlier that this really depends on a confluence of factors for each person and what we see is the sorts of demands that are placed on that young person the resources available to them so we're we're thinking in terms of um, any pre-existing mental health conditions um, as you were mentioning earlier Phoebe about um, cultural expectations Um, and the, the thing we tend to see for young people have a sibling or a parent with cancer is an abrupt drop off in that continuous care for them because often that support was wrapped up with the care of the sibling or the parent in the hospital system. Um, It's also important to take into consideration the context of the loss. So what was the nature of the relationship and the quality of that relationship the the closeness um which is more predictive of the grief reaction than say the the category of the relationship itself um and financial impacts are another really big one to take yeah. into consideration particularly if the the family um, member was the the major breadwinner for example um and then the, the last kind of yeah two real key things to take into consideration are um the young person's appraisal of their ability to cope so can I cope with this situation can I cope with these feelings that I'm having and then yeah. what are their tried and true coping strategies which may be um unhelpful ones or helpful ones um so when we we see all of that picture together um What we tend to observe for young people bereaved by a sibling or a parent is unsurprisingly increased internalising and externalising behaviours and subsequently impaired functioning to various facets of their life so um, as kelly mentioned earlier um, their ability to really engage with work or study um, and to socialize Um, and such observations can serve as little red flags that hey maybe this young person is needing more support Um, so, when we look into what young people need when they're bereaved, our research has shown that the two domains with the greatest percentage of unmet needs were social support from other bereaved young people. So, again, that mm-hmm. connection with young people Someone who, who really get it, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is it, such a compelling driving need, um, particularly because in these contexts, talking to a family member or friend can get complicated yeah. and tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other as Kelly mentioned before was respite so having fun um, from all the heaviness um, and having that sense of a normal life in a way Um, and then uh, those needs are followed by uh, broader social support information about grief and help dealing with all the feelings Um, and so if young people were coming to me, I would be conscious of linking with them with the opportunities to connect with other young people who get it and to have that respite. So that's where canteen can be a great place for them. Uh, Also telling young people that there is no right or wrong way to grieve, um, that everyone deals with it in their own way. And then Helping young people make sense of their grief and their behaviors, um, which I've listed here the, the dual process model and continuing bonds concepts by Strobian and Shoot. Um, I won't go into details uh, about them here, but essentially, the they speak to the view that the goal is not for the grief to disappear, um, but instead for the young person to learn to make space for that pain and to develop a new normal that both honors the loss and moves forward and develops um, uh, that new life without that person there. So, Thinking to my clients that that means that, um, yes, it is very normal to struggle every anniversary and birthday and high or low point in which your parent isn't there, um, that, yes, it's normal to still have conversations with the the sibling you lost mm-hmm. and to think, oh, I wonder what they're saying um, about what I'm doing right now. Um, and, yes, it's normal to gravitate towards those places where you feel really close to them.
0: Yeah yeah yeah. and it and it sounds as though you know I think I think all people who are bereaved um can feel guilty about moving on with their lives, and they yeah. can also feel guilty about being consumed by yeah. grief so yeah. actually giving them permission to know that both of those states are okay and it definitely that it's a normal part of grieving. It's a normal part of
1: grieving, and it's an ongoing part of grieving.
0: Thank you, Esther. So now we're going to talk briefly about Jack. Um, Jack is a 16 year old who lives in rural New South Wales and his mother Sarah is 45 and he's, she's a single mother and she's been just diagnosed with breast cancer recently. He also has a younger sister Stella, who's 13, and Sarah's been having lots of tests and medical appointments recently. Jack hasn't been involved in the appointments at all and he feels a bit out of the loop with what's actually going on. All he knows is that his mother has cancer and is starting treatment. Jack has started telling his friends and teachers, but everyone's acting really weird around him. His friends seem to be avoiding talking about the cancer at all, and then he's got to pretend that everything's okay to make them feel better. His teachers have made some unhelpful comments in front of others that make him feel different and stand out in front of his peers. He's expected to go to school, but he just can't concentrate in class, and he's noticed that his grades are starting to drop. Jack was. Always into soccer, uh, but he's been missing out on team practice because it's been harder to get there with his mum attending so many appointments. And he's also had to do start doing more around the house and look after his sister. His sister's looking up to him for answers and reassurance, but it feels like a lot of pressure just to stay strong for her. Jack's soccer coach has noticed that he's been missing practice and is aware of Sarah's diagnosis. So it's actually the coach who's encouraged Jack to attend. His GP for a check-in. So he comes to see us. Um, yeah, there's a lot here, isn't there? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kelly, what, what really sticks out to you when you think about Jack's situation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I just want to sit with how hard this must be for Jack at the moment it seems like so much has changed so quickly he's turned for people for support and it's been alienating he's in the parentified role and he's in the dark with mom's cancer diagnosis as well so I guess what's sticking out to me is I'm feeling concerned about Jack withdrawing from soccer it seems like it's a really big hobby for him and we know that that's a connection to play and exercise and social mm-hmm. support which is really important to keep stable at the moment for Jack. Yeah. I also am, I've got a lot of curiosity about mum keeping her diagnosis and appointments quite secretive. Mm. Um, And I'm wondering how mum might be coping at the moment. I'm also aware that that Jack and his family are remote, which might mean extra travel time to appointments. It might mean a lack of services in the community and it might mean that they're isolated. So, I've got lots of questions around who's around to, to wrap this family around with support. That might mean you know friends or family neighbors even just to to help Jack attend soccer or to help around the house Um, Mm -hmm. but what services are able to wrap this family around because it seems like they're quite isolated and really going through it at the moment I'm also really curious around school you know if um, there was some advocacy work that we could do with the school to help increase the support and understanding from, from school as well. Um, yeah, it sounds like he's really in a tough situation at the moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly as a GP, it would worry me very much that the mother is, um, yeah, yeah, there's something not quite right here and, um, about the mother sort of withholding so much detail uh, from Jack. I mean, it's, it's understandable, but I think it's making things just that much harder. So, um, So we now come to part two of Jack's story. Um, uh, Very sadly, uh, Sarah's treatment's not working. Um, The cancer's now spread to her bones and lymph nodes, and she's been told that there's no further treatment available. Um, Although she's been sick for ages, um, she's got no hair and the hospital's become their second home. Jack didn't expect this outcome. He'd expected his mum to bounce back just like other times. And he's finding it really hard to accept that there are no more treatments left to try. He's feeling mad all the time at everyone and everything. He's feeling guilty because he's mad at his mum that she's going to leave him and he'll need to continue looking after Stella. Yeah. Esther, what, what's, what comes to you when you hear about this part of mm. Jack's story?
1: Well it's um you know I noticed myself like really getting into it and feeling slightly teary and I'm just thinking I can just imagine the the pain uh, the rage the the panic that is yeah. flooding his body um uh, of course he's feeling mad he's losing his major attachment figure his rock his source of comfort and Even though he knows it's not his mum's fault, we've all been there when our head and our heart don't match and all his heart knows is that mum is leaving me Um, and often it is safer to feel mad than it is to feel sad. Mm -hmm. So uh, if Jack were to present to me, I would be really heavy on normalising and validating what he's feeling helping him put words to his experience um, and make sense of it um, and helping him figure out ways to cope that are kind and nurturing and grounding. And I think uh, Jack loves soccer, so maybe intense exercise is his thing yeah. or it can be something as simple as a morning ritual where he goes out and gets a cup of coffee. Um and I would certainly consider scheduling regular check-in appointments with him um, to look out for any of those red flags you mentioned earlier about internalizing and externalizing behaviors. And the other thing that I see from this part of his case study is that he has been shocked mm. by the news. Mm. And as Kelly was mentioning before, it's then that opportunity to fill in blanks with all his worst nightmares about, yeah, what is going to happen to mom? What's what does this mean for me and Stella? So that's where the information, communication and those practical and social supports are vital. Uh, I would be ensuring the family is connected to services and supports that they need to get through her death and beyond. And that's emotionally, socially, medically, practically, financially, like everything. Um, And doing so will increase the likelihood that those red flags will be picked up earlier. Mm. Also really important to start facilitating those conversations with Sarah's treatment team to help them understand uh, what will her what will it look like as Sarah dies and her condition deteriorates. And conversations within the family about what are her preferences for her end of life care and for her funeral and um, what happens to her body. And then uh, finally, uh, something we call legacy work, which are conversations and practices that can occur before and after death. That would comfort Sarah in the knowledge that she will be remembered and comfort Jack in maintaining that ongoing adaptive connection to his mum. And so um, with some clients, we have uh, helped families collaboratively write the story of their loved one mm-hmm. or the, the loved one may uh, write letters or videos. You often see that in movies. Um And then there's also um, holding honouring ceremonies or rituals on important dates. So I have a client who will often go to the beach. That's where they feel connection and they will release a flower into the ocean. So Mm -hmm. something that's meaningful to them. Um, And I think we need to acknowledge that really at the end of the day, there's no preparatory work that can be done that will necessarily make his grief easier. (sighs) But what we can do is um, better position him to manage it, and I think that that is the, the goal at this stage.
0: Mm, mm, you know, I wanted to pick up on something you said there, Esther, about the importance yeah. of follow up, and I think mm. if I was seeing, you know, um, Jack in the in the GP setting, I'd want to be seeing him quite frequently mm. just to touch base, yeah. um, just mm. to have a bit of a chat and a yarn, yeah. and. Um, yeah. And mm. uh, because Jack is, for me, Jack is so vulnerable mm. because there is no other caregiver in the picture. No. Uh, yeah. And you know, this feelings of abandonment, it makes me wonder what happened with dad.
1: It does. Um, yes, very um, much.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, and, and whether he's ever really processed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If there's some trauma around that. Yeah. Yeah. So, certainly. Yeah. Mm. All righty. So uh, we're now at a point where, um, Sarah's unfortunately died um, six months ago from metastatic breast cancer. And Jack's actually presented to the GP with forms for special consideration for the HSC, um, which has been recommended by his year advisors at school. Really, he's just not able to concentrate in class. He's not handing in assignments on time. He hasn't been attending school that much because he's been staying home with Stella. You know, he says that he's actually processed losing his mum before she passed away and he says he's just fine now. He explained that his continued struggle with school is actually because he's preoccupied with looking after Stella and managing the household duties. He says he's basically had minimal support from his extended family and he's just trying to keep it together for Stella. Stella's crying pretty much every day about missing her mum and Jack says he has to be the strong one in the house. As Jack and the GP talk further, he's also telling us that He's finding it difficult to sleep and he's having a few beers at night to help him sleep. He's been going through Sarah's belongings, but he still hasn't stepped foot into Sarah's bedroom since she died. He just wants to focus on getting through every day and doesn't really know what he wants to do after the HSC. He feels really alone in all of this. He doesn't have any friends who seem to get it and he doesn't know anyone who's lost a parent before.
1: My thoughts are that... We are seeing now some of those red flags more clearly um, about the externalising and internalising behaviours for young people in bereavement and that's him um, self-medicating with alcohol, which we know Jack is at higher risk for given he lives in a rural area. Um, It's him saying he's fine despite evidence to the contrary. So... um, We're also seeing some red flags that may indicate he's entering into complicated grief territory. Um, So I think the thing to note here is that although we know everyone grieves in their own way, um, we don't want to normalise grief to such a point that we invalidate for some, it becomes harmful. Mm. Um, So... What some of the red flags are here that um, may indicate in DSM language, Prelim, Grief Disorder um, are his avoidance of going into Sarah's room, his history of um, feeling guilt and blame uh, before Sarah's death. So I think really uh, all these red flags warrant further investigation and I would be undertaking a more detailed um, risk and psychosocial assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll be quick. The other thing I'll notice here is this, terrible, glaring lack of social and practical support, which is shockingly more common than we would uh, think. And so here it would be really taking any opportunity. He's now here for um, academic consideration to provide such support and find out, um, you know, where in his network could we leverage and get more support for him. Um, And to recognise that Jack doesn't seem very ready um, to talk about this just yet. And he may not even have the words. Yeah. So it mm-hmm. is just taking his lead and putting the foot in the door, um, seeing where you can make those inroads. So Stella may be his motivation, or it may be, you know, going to canteen for respite and getting um, into counselling that way. Mm. Um, and just, there will come a time. Um, when there we we need to point out the incongruency between his behavior and his words, um, and that's where you can really go in and normalize his grief and his struggle, and that everyone needs help.
0: yeah, yeah. Yep. And then it, as we were talking about earlier on, thinking more broadly, mm. you know, red flags about Stella as. I mean, mm. I Excel mean, mm. as GPs probably be a more from the school, hopefully, yes. keeping those communication channels yeah. open and this is a system, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So what is it that um that's available to help young people and families stay connected um, that's available uh, sort of online to anyone living in Australia?
1: Mm. So Canteen has two online communities, one for young people and one for parents. And they're, they're both places where they can obtain counselling, uh, resources, blogs, um, and uh, the all-important connection with other people who get it. Um, so you can check out, yeah, Canting Connect and Parenting Through Cancer through those websites.
0: Mm, fantastic. Mm. Um, I understand that just last year Cancer Hub uh, was launched. Um, Kelly, what, what's, what does Cancer Hub do?
2: Yeah, so Cancer Hub was launched last year um, to support families with a young person age zero to 25 that's impacted by cancer and Cancer Hub is an affiliation between Red Kite, Camp Quality and Canteen and it works to be an easy uh, entry point for, um, for support. So, cancer hub was developed because we know that navigating services and the system's really tough, but even for a professional health professional as well. So it's an easy referral point. So we have a intake intake team that will allocate the referrals between the three organizations. So you don't have to sit there as the referrer and think, you know, I've got an eight year old and a 16 year old and a parent and in this situation, who, who's doing what? So um, it, it's, it's been developed to streamline services to mm. reduce barriers mm. Mm -hmm. Um, and to offer, you know, practical support to families, emotional support through counselling and to connect them into opportunities to connect with others and to have that respite as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, sounds absolutely amazing. And in terms of the referral process to Canteen, um, basically once we have permission, we can do that either via an online form or through calling that one 800 835-932 Eight three five nine three two number and then the intake team will take it over from there yep. um so i think that it's really good to know that it's 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 that sort of warm referral that mm-hmm. we're for mm-hmm. um and that um i can imagine that that would make a big difference actually for yeah you know, yes, yeah absolutely. um now i also know that um at canteen you've developed a uh, oncology psychosocial care training program and there's now um there's now an online resource um, to help people um, navigate that. So mm-hmm. that's available for everybody. It's free. Is that right, Esther?
1: Yeah, so um, we developed a guide for clinical staff working amongst young people diagnosed with cancer to undertake psychosocial assessment and care planning. And this online training is free and available um, for anyone to um, become more familiar with that manual um, and those processes. So uh, whether you're working in that space or you're simply curious,
0: please check it out. Sounds great. Um, and just bringing your attention to two other resources that may be um, of help as well, Finding My Way is an internet-based intervention uh, for um, people who are undergoing treatment for cancer and looking at physical and mental wellbeing Um, And then LifeWire is a free online community um, connecting teens um, who are hospitalised or living with illness or disability. So it's a bit broader, um, but there's a moderated chat there. And that may also be something that will be suitable for some of your clients. Um, And just um, reminding you about the MPRAC uh, info uh, handouts. Um, This one in particular is digital mental health resources for young people. So For example, if we recognise that in fact Jack also now has an anxiety disorder or depression and we wanted to Mm. refer him for some online CBT to get him started for that. This is, you know, a place to go where you can see all the different sorts of resources that are actually designed for young people and what might be suitable for someone like Jack. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast on supporting young people who are impacted by cancer. A big thank you to Esther and Kelly from Canteen for sharing your experience and expertise with us. All the resources and services that we've discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website in the Health Professional Resource and Education Hub under Webinar 58. Thanks so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.